This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by Chadwick Ginther, author of the Thunder Road Trilogy and the upcoming Graveyard Mind. Available this July wherever books are sold, but you might be able to get it early at FanQuest June 23rd and 24th at the Red River College Exchange District Campus. Come to FanQuest, meet Chadwick, and see his latest work. Go to FanQuestCon.com for more information. Attention, citizens, it's time for Super Pope Science. This is Super Pope Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. I'm here with my long-suffering co-host, Justin Curry. Back again. Back again. You can't leave, actually. It's like the Hotel California. And we're here with a very special guest, someone that we've talked about many times uh, on this podcast, Mr. Chadwick Ginther. Welcome, hey, Chadwick. Me. You're welcome. In preparation for the podcast, I wore my... Um, American Gods shirt, my Neil Excellent. Gaiman shirt, because Fine shirt. Chadwick is the uh, Neil Gaiman of Winnipeg, for sure. Um, he <laughs> uh, is... That's not going to come back to haunt me. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you guys have a Twitter fight over this. Um, but you do mythic fiction. I do. You're a writer of novels, and you are a uh, writer of comics now. And the one thing that I really appreciate about you, Chadwick, is that... Um, you don't just show up at the keyboard and get your books out. You also show up at shows and get the word out. So we're going to talk to you. Yeah, we're going to talk. We're going to put you on the hot seat about how we can become novelists. Because we've decided to leave comics behind, right, Curry? Really? Yeah. I like comics. No, you're out. You're <laughs> I like done. comics too. Just books. <laughs> just books now, and Chad is going to teach us how. Right? Sure. Okay, right. so we also did something that we've never done before, uh, which is we asked the uh, interwebs some questions to ask you. Um, so I've got one here for you right. that says, basically, how do you combat the feeling that you're an imposter? Well, combating the feeling is a lot harder than actually recognizing you're feeling it. Uh, oh. I, didn't, I didn't know, I didn't, for the longest time, I didn't know about imposter syndrome as a thing. I just thought, you know, why am I doing this? Why, why am I still struggling? You know, I haven't sold anything yet. Right. Um, but in, in right from the early days when I was building my routine and just trying to get words on the page, uh, actually, I, I still have a framed uh, image of Nick Cave on my office door that I cut out of some music magazine. And there's a quote on there from him that says, writer's block is a profound lack of self-confidence and I've never felt that. <laughs> And oh. so I'm like, I am going, oh God. <laughs> and, and I'm like, I don't know that I believe this, but I want it to be, you true. Want it to be true. And yeah. so it's like every time I would walk into my, into my office, there's, there's Nick Cave with like, this was in the era when he had like the, like, well, he's always had the long, the long pulled back hair, but he also had a really bad mustache. Right. And so him and his really bad mustache are staring, staring at me at saying, you. you have no excuse but to make words. And so that, I mean... It sort of it sort of got me started, but I still I mean I published three novels. My fourth one is coming out. I've written comics. I published over a dozen short stories, and I still feel it. I still like it, I thought I was over it actually yeah. until I tried something new, and the the new thing was I was asked to teach a teen writers workshop, oh. and then it was who am I to be telling these people how to write and what to, you know, like that was yeah. for me, uh, I never felt like more of an imposter than when <laughs> I was trying to instruct other people who were just getting started. So dear listener, what we're talking about right now is something called imposter syndrome. Um, it's kind of a tongue in cheek way of talking about how 
Um, when you're a creative person, you feel reluctance to identify as one professionally, even once you've become a professional. Certainly before you've been paid to do your work, if you're a writer, you feel like perhaps you're not a writer, you don't introduce yourself as a writer, so you say, oh, I'm an aspiring writer or some nonsense like that. If you showed up, you went home, and you wrote, then you're a writer. If you went home and you watch TV, then you're a TV watcher, right? It's create yourselves through what you do. Hmm. That, I, I don't like that quote. Yeah. <laughs> that bugs me. Because like, isn't the, like, I never get writer's block. Because yeah. isn't like the whole creative process is, you know, you have valleys and mountains, yeah. right? It's, it's. Well, I, I think there, I think there's a, it sort of depends on how you define writer's block, right? right. For me, writer's block is not, oh my god, I, I don't know what to write. It, it's almost never, it, I, I know from the years I've been doing this, if I go and sit down at the keyboard, I will make words. Yeah. For me, writer's block is getting myself in front of the keyboard when everything else in your life is saying, yeah, but the lawn needs to be mowed and, you know, oh, you didn't sleep well last night and you normally write in the morning, so take this morning off. Like it, that, mm. that to me is the, is the block. It's, it's, it's more disruption of the routine that I use to create my words. So let's I talk about you. momentum for a second then, because that's sort of what you're getting into. There's a quote that I like, I can't remember who said it, about writer's block that basically explained it that writer's block is your subconscious telling you that you need to think about the story more, that it needs to process. And so when you go to the well and you try to bring up something great and there's nothing there, it's because it's still working. It's like, it's like the little spinning wheel on your MacBook, right? It's still got something mm -hmm. to do before it can give you what you want. Um, I prefer that, so I switch yeah. gears a little bit. But how do you, so you wake up in the morning, you haven't slept, you maybe went out to uh, Calgary Expo and had too much whiskey the night before, and then what? How do you write anyway? Do you it usually recognize it? Yeah, like, I, I sort of I sort of know what's going on yeah. and why I don't want why I don't want to, and I mean, mostly it's it's there's very rarely a good reason not to write. Right. Uh, one of the one of the few ones for me that I where I accepted it and just didn't beat myself up about it was I changed jobs and it completely changed it demolished my routine. Oh yeah, and oh. I had to rebuild a routine. I had to rebuild a routine. Yeah, because routine so, helps you have a thinking space, yeah. like a framework to know when to, you know, you know, like when you're on autopilot, this is something I've done a million times, I know what to do, fine, so you think about something else while you do it, yeah. and it doesn't you know, affect your productivity. And, and like, you know, be, like, people say you should be able to write through anything, and, you know, the, I had to deliver to... People to also yeah. say democracy is the perfect system, yes. right? Well, I, I mean, I, I had to deliver two eulogies in quick succession, and that was... That was writing. Yeah. That uh, you know that that ate up that ate up all of my that ate up all of my writing mind. There was no working on fiction while I was trying to do that. Yeah. So, there, I mean, there's definitely times where I, I just feel like you know you shouldn't you shouldn't beat yourself up about it. But if you're if it's a you're coming home and you're just watching TV too many days in a row, or you know instead of writing in the morning, you're just you're wait you're spending your time in uh, the Tim Hortons lineup. Not that I know from experience. Right. Uh, you know, then that's another thing, right? Yeah. Where you're not, there isn't a reason other than you're killing time and not, not putting work in. Right. Is there a, do you have a, the equivalent, do you have artist block? I, uh, yeah, like I, I definitely have, you know, days where 
I guess I yeah, I kind of I identify it as when you're sitting down to draw and just nothing's turning out correctly. Like I'm just yeah. not into anything I'm working on. It's a bit of a grind. Um, so you've used the explanation of the translator, right? Yeah. Like you have an idea and then you get good at translating it onto the page and that's mm -hmm. an image. Mm -hmm. So can you like our, maybe that's just what it is. We're translating onto yeah. the page and the translator is a little tired, yeah. a little yeah. slow. I, I think it, it also, it, it'll depend on your process. I don't know how it is. Uh, I haven't drawn regularly in probably 20 years, but for, for me, I always say you can fix bad words, but you can't fix no words. Oh. And so, mm. for a composition, if you if you start like if you start off, on our wall, <laughs> if you, you, you grow a mustache <laughs> so that we can make a comparable photo. But if you like if you're starting out with an art, art artistic piece and your composition is wrong right from the get go, it's going to be hard to fix that, right? Like if you have immediately, just that's that's how I would view it. But true, if yeah. I've got words on the page, I can cut and paste those and move them around a lot more easily. I'm like, oh, this is thin. I can fill it out. I just need some more description here. Um, you know, this conversation goes on too long. Just snip, snip, snip. Like I can do that. Right. And that's why for, for me, it's sort of a, it's an even if I'm not feeling it, even if I think everything I do is garbage, I can fix it later. I can fix it in post because I, I know how I work too. And I think everyone has that place on their cycle where they get to the point and they're like, oh my God, I've tricked everyone yeah. up until this point. And this is the moment where it will be revealed <laughs> yeah. that I don't know what I'm doing at all. And people will start I've, calling yeah. me out. I've also it. noticed like I, I've had that those days before where I think everything is garbage. And when I come back a week later, I realize, no, this is fine. This is good. It was just yeah. my, the mental state I was in that day. I was just kind of down on myself, but coming back at it later, the work was the work was yeah. like usable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Funct so. Functionally, I cannot tell the difference between writing days when I felt I was in the groove, and writing days where I struggled. Yeah. At that's all. Interesting. Like when I, because over the span of a book, it it'll it could take me three months to finish. It could take me a year to finish. And then you have rewrites. You have some move around. Yeah. And so I can I can never tell after yeah. the first draft is done what I was what I was feeling and what I was struggling with I, I think I I actually think that the days when I'm feeling it and I'm like I'm in a groove I feel like that's when I'm overindulgent and those end up being the pieces where I need to yeah where the process is colorful cut, and you have to cut I right? need to cut yeah. back rather than build up yeah. normally my edits involve building up but I think if I am in the groove then I'm then those are the scenes where I need to trim back how to start I'm hungry I should get coffee. Coffee would help me think. But I should write something first, then reward myself with coffee. Coffee and a muffin. Okay, so I need to establish the themes. Maybe banana nut. That's a good muffin. Now you do a lot of world building. Um, how do you know, so for the dear listener who may be thinking about what we're talking about, when we're talking about world building, we're talking about all the things that aren't the story that could be the story if you went there. So there are plenty of towns you pass in Lord of the Rings that we don't know what happened there, but we could. And mm -hmm. probably, in fact, we know for a fact that Gerard Tolkien knew what happened there for 200 years before <laughs> anyone arrived. And that world building can get in the way of getting a story finished. And you have stories with a lot of yeah. world. 
Well, world building is the, a similar problem to research right. in that it feels like work. It oh, feels like you were doing the work. Like, I love it, but, I it, like that but it feels like you're working, right? Because yeah. oh, I'm, yeah. I'm building my world. I'm learning about what it was actually like to fight from horseback, you know, all of these things. But the, you know, for you guys, the work is putting the picture on the page. And for me, the work is putting the story on the page. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, it absolutely can. Um, I come at it, I come at world building from a Dungeons and Dragons background. Yeah. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons and you Marvel comic books are the two things most responsible or most to blame for me being a writer. Uh, and one of the things that they always sort of recommended for people building their own worlds when you were playing Dungeons and Dragons is you start small. You start in, that's why you, they start always started in a, in, a, in a central town yeah. or like, so you only need to know this little bit. And as, the characters start interacting with the world, oh, well, this bit is interesting, so I'm going to flesh this little bit out more. And I think I, I'm a very organic writer. I'm what they refer to as a pantser. I write by the seat of my pants. I don't really do a lot of outlining ahead of time. So I will just, it'll be a throwaway line. And then to me, that suddenly becomes something. And it becomes something I need to expand and it becomes something important. Uh, I don't know usually everything going on in the world until I need to know it. Uh, so I find it gets in the way of actually writing the story. I'm trying to write around all of these details. So um, myself and James Gillespie are working on a novel project right now, bouncing stuff back and forth. And I find in order to write forward, I constantly have to, because it's like it's basically a fantasy setting, I have to reread all the little bits of color mm -hmm. that we put in to figure out whether any of it is important later because I get caught putting too many like weird words or weird phrases mm -hmm. or references to places and that old adage that like, you know, if there's a gun in the first act, it better go off by the end. Yeah. And how do you combat that? Uh, my, I, I'm, I'm also uh, co-writing a novel with a, a friend of mine and, and she hates me when I say this. She's like, I just tell her that my brain just does that. Right. If I am, if oh, I am, thanks. Yeah. I, I, and, and, that is, and that is of no help. Chadwick's brain, but that's the if I am, if I am working on a project largely without interruption, my subconscious remembers those things and carries them forward. If I take too long of a break, I need to go back. Um, so sometimes it just comes down to that momentum. If you it's, keep it's the momentum, momentum yeah. then you show up. What, how did you say that? You can fix? You can, f you can fix bad words. You can't fix no words. Can't fix no Well, you can fix no words by writing words. Writing words. Right? Oh, and so your career is born. Um, now, you do something that a lot of other people, I think, and that there was a few questions about it. Um, I think you do it well. How do you manage getting the words on the page and getting yourself to your regular job? Uh, I write in the margins of, I, I, I actually I had a brief flirtation with writing full time when I was in between, in between jobs uh, about five years ago. And I found that I watched The Hobbit an awful lot. <laughs> and like the Ralph Bashy one? Like no, the no, the first, oh, first uh, the first of the Peter Jackson ones. Right. And it wasn't, be and I enjoy the movie, but it wasn't because I loved the movie that I watched it all the time. It was because it was the movie that was upstairs. Like that's how deeply lazy I became. <laughs> I had hundreds of movies just down the stairs, but this one was already upstairs. In the player. In, in the fact, player. I player. And I, I would get texts from my from my wife saying, "Are you watching The Hobbit?" And I wouldn't lie to her, and I would say yes, and then she would say, "I need you to go pick up apples." Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just to get me out and doing things. But. Right. 
uh, when I started my, my current job, I was trying to build up that new routine. And so I, I wrote pretty much my entire third book longhand on the bus on my on my w my ride into work and my ride home from work and I would you know wander around and so you're an author of mythic fiction that sounds like a mythic thing to do <laughs> yeah right I, I I only I called it a book when I realized I'd like my normal writing time words weren't coming out but on the bus thing words were and yeah. they were only coming out longhand so I used my normal writing times to transcribe what I'd been writing and maybe all the words were kind there. Of first edit maybe all the words were all there in the ether but your body had to be going fast enough to get yeah. It's <laughs> the equivalent right? of carrying around a sketchbook, right? Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, I, I always have a notebook yeah. with me because that's usually how things start for me. Like the bones of a, of a book will start in a, in a conversation that comes out in seemingly out of nowhere while I'm out and about doing something else. And that's why I always want to have a notebook. And that's... I think more novels need to take a, a page from like what graphic novels and comics do and in the very back of the book have like a photograph of that first scrap of paper or that first napkin where that first conversation had like yeah. this entire book came from this stained conversation yeah. you know i i save almost every piece of my writing ephemera yeah i have most of the post-its <laughs> of the chagrin of your wife I'm yeah sure. <laughs> uh well i i've yeah i've got like a a bunch of plastic storage tubs in our leeward crawl space and everything's all sealed up but I, well you know it's what not that though? i think that anyone will care about my archives but it's like the okay. book wouldn't exist without this and so i don't want to get rid of it so i spent a little bit of time uh, actually at uh uh a writing convention that you first told me about when words collide mm -hmm. i met uh, kevin anderson there and uh kevin j anderson if you prefer but he told us this great story. When you're talking about this ephemera, it made me think of this. Great story about when him and Brian Herbert were going and writing the Dune novels. How he got to go through the boxes because all those things were kept. All yeah. the little scraps of the trajectory of the story from like early inception of the idea all the way through. And he found the piece in the box of note paper. Uh, apparently, uh, Frank Herbert had this note paper that he kept by the bed. So when he'd wake up in the middle of the night, he'd write an idea down and go back to sleep. He found the actual physical piece of paper where it said, damn the spice, right? Make yeah. Lido a good king, right? Mm -hmm. And it changed, you know, it changed, like the entire universe of that world pivots on that one idea that was written on that little scrap. And he's, you know, he said it was kind of like finding a reliquy, like he just was holding this like piece of a saint. Yeah. Right? So maybe one day, maybe. we're all dead. Someone will be holding your scrap of paper, <laughs> right? Well where it said, Mr. Bones Pizza, <laughs> good villain, <laughs> right? But sire, we can't leave all this spice. Damn the spice, get out of there. Tell us about Graveyard Mind, what's going on? Uh, Graveyard Mind, uh, I think it, it was, it was a, a reactionary novel in a way of me wanting to do something different than the Thunder Road trilogy, but still something of a piece with what I enjoyed. So I looked at, uh, as, I, as Thunder Road was, get, was uh, you know, gaining momentum with early rejections, I'm like, well, well, what's going on with urban fantasy? Mostly it is written from first-person perspective. Mostly it has a, uh, has a woman as the protagonist. And mostly it is set in a place that is not Winnipeg. Right. And so I'm like, what is, what is the one thing I will not compromise on? 
and that is I want to set my books in Winnipeg because I love living here. I love writing about it. And so uh, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to try writing a novel first person for the first time. I'm going to try writing a, a novel. And, and I'd, I'd, written, um, I'd written women as protagonists in short stories, but never over the span of an entire novel and never as the sole protagonist. Right. Um, so that it was, it was very much a, I need to do something different. I want to, but I also want it to feel like me. I, I don't, I don't really have a stake in branding. I want to work on what I want to work on. Right. And so, but I wanted it to feel like me. Yeah. And so it was, it needed to be different, but it still needed to be me. It's the same bit. Uh, and I feel like when I wrote my second book, Tombstone Blues, I didn't, I wasn't done with Haunted Winnipeg. And that sort of got this idea of a necromancer who lived here and that sort of, that was, that was kind of rattling around. Uh, the thing that you, and you will, you'll probably love this, the thing that made me write it, I was going to write something else as my next book. The thing, thing that made me write it was a Todd Lockwood illustration. Come on, really? Yeah. Amazing. I went to World Fantasy Convention in Calgary. He was the artist guest of honor. And so he had the cover of that uh, of the program book, and it was a young woman with dark hair, uh, in a blue uh, cloak, blue hooded cloak, but contemporary clothing, and that became my That's sort your of anchor image. You talk about doing this. My you sort of image of yeah. that that is that is winter, that is my that is my that is my heroine. Right. And, Dear uh, listeners, when I said, you talk about doing this, I pointed at Justin as if you could all see us, but you can't. <laughs> Justin, tell us about how anchor images affect what you're doing. He found one in the world and then made a story around it. Every once in a while, I, I do that too. Um, you know, you have an idea for a character, for a world, or for a scene, and your mind kind of circles around that, circles around that, and sometimes, um, actually it just happened, I, I uh, recently just saw the Solo movie, and I'm not going to spoil anything, so did I. but <laughs> there's a certain character in the solo movie that I realized has been a character I've been thinking about like for for years. Oh my God, that's that's her. That's like right. who I've been thinking about, well, and this is her about. like personified. That's the girl that like I've been trying to to come like come up with. So and someone got there first, some, or someone like helped you unlock the idea. Somebody further? helped. Yeah, somebody opened the door and showed me what was on the other side. And so now that now I, I yeah I have that that anchor image that yeah interesting okay we have another question from the interwebs this is fun it feels like we're on a real radio show <laughs> with call-ins except the lag here is days and days you know what, you could tell people this is happening live this is happening live there we go, right yeah. now in your basement we are there <laughs> yeah so the question actually relates to what you just said which is what made me think of, to ask it how do you reconcile past work with new work you made the, you just made a point of saying yeah. like i want it to feel like me but i have to try something new i have to do something different what is that process like for you um the hard the hardest part for me was when i had to jump back into a series after there had been a lag in it uh with the thunder road trilogy i wrote the second book immediately after i drafted the first one because it showed up whole. It showed up as an entire novel in my head and I was racing to get it on the page. I, that draft was done in, I think, five weeks. Come on. For that book. It just, I, I wrote one line at the end of Thunder Road and I, and I immediately knew what the next book would be and I had to do it. I'm like, 
I shouldn't be writing this until I sell book one because yeah. I might be wasting my time. But I, if I don't do it, I don't think I can come back to it. Right. Well, then I was querying Momentum that book. Again. Exactly. And then I was querying that book and, you know, submitting that. And I'm like, in the meantime, I was drafting other things and working on other short stories. And then I sold the series. And now, after not thinking about Thunder Road in a substantial way for a couple of years, I had to write the third novel. I had to... Right. Like first, I had to go back and edit the second book, but I also had to I had to write the third book and and recapture that voice. Um, I think I I tried to find what the core of whatever it is. And again, like you can fix bad words, you can't fix no words. So right. I lean I leaned in very much to a caricature of my protagonist to get back to it, knowing that I could find him again. Right. Uh, so it led to my favorite uh, my favorite. Uh, editorial note of all time, which was, this book contains a staggering amount of profanity. <laughs> and uh, and I'm like, can I use that as a pull quote? <laughs> like, no, you may not. Um, oh, no, it's a I great pull quote. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll give you that. It's a but it, but it, was, it was from writing, I knew what it, I knew they were right, yeah. um, but it was from the process of writing, drafting that book in 100 to 500 word pieces on the bus, yeah. but I'm like, you could tell when I hadn't been writing for a while, or I had written a lot in a while, because there'd be a spike in profanity when I'd started working on a chapter, and it would, I'm moving my hand again, like the reader, like the listeners can see me, but it would gradually, it would gradually descend over time, and yeah. then there'd be another spike where I hadn't been, you could tell, I knew I hadn't been writing for a while, and so I'm like, I was trying to find the character again, and so for me, it was, it was just, getting the broad strokes if you and yeah i don't well, feel so i lose I the, the broad strokes of who i'm writing about i have a theory about queries so dear listener a query letter is basically when you sum up your novel in a sentence or so and say hey does anyone care and you send that to agents and publishers and but you have to really boil it down and encapsulate it as simply as possible yeah. and the effort of making a query letter tells mm -hmm. you that you know what your own book yeah. is about once you've sold it, when it's time to do book two or three, you don't have to do a query. It feels so great because yeah. I already <laughs> sold it. I don't have to worry yeah. about this or whatever. Do you think that, or do you, have you ever found that the process of writing the query letter helps you understand your own book in oh. a way that when you don't have to? Abs you, absolutely. And yeah. I, I wish that I would have needed to write a query for the third book uh, in, the, in the Thunder Road trilogy because I, I wrote 30,000 words in the wrong direction. Right. Because in my in my brain, as I was conceptualizing what this was going to be and how I was going to end it, I wanted to end the series on a weird Western note. I wanted it to feel like a like a Joe Lansdale like episode of Batman the Animated Series, where right. like you go back in time and it, you're, it's Jonah Hex for some reason. Right. Like that. I I wanted that, and it was wrong. It was the wrong way to end the series. It was, it was just mm. my authorial intent getting in the way of what needed to be done. And I realized that this is a kaiju movie. This is, that's right. what this book needs to be. It's a, and so, so but I had to write 30,000 words in the wrong direction. So do you ever find, find I find this when I'm working on stuff and I know, well, we've talked about this, Justin, you and I, um, that sometimes your brain switches to a new interest while you're still working on a current project. And mm -hmm. you start putting a bunch of effort and time into it before you realize, oh, actually, that's all for a different thing. 
and I have to break yeah. it off and put it there and wait yeah. till I can go yeah. there. Is that, are yeah. you working on a Weird West thing too? Uh, I can't remember if I was at the time. I, I had an idea for a story that would, it actually became a comic script. Uh, I realized that it wasn't, it wasn't right as fiction and that every, every moment that I was writing down in that, in that story, I was seeing, I was seeing too visually and I'm like, oh, okay. And I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that actually until I'd written my first comic script, understanding why I couldn't write this as a book. Right. Because it wasn't a book. Because it was mm. too visual. Yeah. And just like the beats weren't working on the page. I couldn't make the prose flow in the way that I was envisioning it. And I did, I, I did my first comic script for uh, Donovan Yashik for Space Pig Hamadeus. Right. And I'm like, oh, that's what I'm trying to do. That's what you're trying to do. <laughs> This is before the first issue of the comic book hit the stands in 1968. It's a classic depiction of good versus evil. One of the things that I find is a difference, and we can all discuss this a little bit because we all use words and we use pictures, uh, although sometimes you make uh, Justin Shaft do it for you. Um, He's fantastic. Hire him. Some, yeah, he is <laughs> quite excellent. If you're looking for um, a comic illustrator. Uh, is that illustration has this power to show you a whole bunch of things at once and the reader sort of decodes it on their own speed. Like you can show, you know, you can have an elaborate fight scene, say, where you have a mid-ground, foreground, and background where all these things are happening at the same time, mm -hmm. and you can see it all and sort of absorb it all at once. Yeah. But if you were writing it as prose, you'd have to get to each thing a yeah. paragraph at a time, yeah. which would change the pace. Comics treat space for time differently than books treat space for time. Yeah. When you make a paragraph break, right, it's the next idea. Yeah. But when you have a panel break, you could have a year between that, or you could have a second between that, or a millisecond between that. It's very different. Um, I just rambled. Discuss. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. I think actually that's one of the reasons why I became a reader as, as quickly as I did. Uh, I was sick before I started school, and my mom bought me a bunch of comics when I was in the hospital to keep me amused. You're like the villain in Unbreakable. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um, How many days in your life have you been sick, Justin? Not too, too many. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. There we go. <laughs> I've definitely broken some bones. Okay. Yeah. Phew. Yeah. yeah. Phew. No train but, accidents uh, in our immediate future. <laughs> but I realized as my, as my mother was, trying, was reading the comics to me aloud, I was following the story faster than it could be read aloud because I was getting the story from the pictures and so hearing the dialogue out loud was getting in the way, like I, I was so frustrated that, that I, wanted to, I wanted to keep moving forward and so that, that drove me to teach myself how to read. So I'm a little bit right? mad and for the idea of semiotics and how like a symbol stands in for meaning. And um, Noam Chomsky has this, you know, his whole theory of language is that language is, okay, I'm doing it. This will be a very truncated, bad summation of Chomsky internet, please do not come after me for this, but essentially that language is fully formed in a child and is simply revealed to them so that it's almost a process of memory, not learning, right? And so it's one of the reasons why they believe, and by they I mean like uh, linguists and um, reading theorists and reading development people believe that when you put pictures uh, in kids' books, it allows them to read and understand words much more rapidly than when you don't. Because they're remembering almost like a genetic memory of what this 
representation is in accordance <laughs> to language, right? Cool. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's a, like a pretty, it's, this is just like a tiny little sliver of a very big concept, but. Well, I mean, um, like, certainly there's, there's tons and tons of visual dictionaries these days for kids, right. right? Where it's got the picture and it's got the word, and I mean, that's gotta, you look at all the board books for, for newborns, and it's it's very much like you're 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 giving them a texture and a word. You're giving them an image and a word. Yeah. And I think absolutely. Then just trying to, you know, I could write a paragraph trying to explain an apple to a two-year-old, but it's not going to work. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. How come there's not more silent comics? I was thinking this on the weekend. Like we were talking about the the power of of imagery, and there's you know. Such maybe amazing if there was illustrators out there, that, but there's very maybe if there's more uh, more production errors, like that famous issue of GI Joe. That's right, where they just didn't. There was there was a script for that, yeah, but, they, but they didn't put any words in. So there is. Uh, I'm not big on most of the Marvel events, except the young person in me still enjoyed Atlantis Attacks. Um, <laughs> but they did a thing. I don't remember exactly when, but I was an adult when I read it. Where Marvel did a thing called Nuff Said where they did one month, I think it, I, I may be misunderstanding or misrepresenting it, but it was one month where all the Marvel books had no text in them. Cool. Right? And so they were just, they were all Do you all think they just had stories. to fire a bunch of writers and then they came up with a great way to spin it? Well, <laughs> it begs the question then, or it really reveals the question in comics, uh, are artists writing, but just using a different set of symbols than letters? And I think the answer is completely revealed by that, which yeah. is yes. Yes. Right? You can abstract uh, T-H-E uh, and have a the, right? Or I can have a the anything by drawing the picture, right? And the the mm -hmm. is implied. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, and I, I, I don't know that I, I realized necessarily how important that side of the collaboration of, you know, comic artist and comic writer was until I started making comics. Right. Right, and I'd, until until you start, like you can have it explained to you, but until you were in there and trying to build a book and and right. collaborate with somebody. Well, tell it, us a little bit then, since you're on the subject yeah. of uh, Midnight Man Midnight and how Man. the how you came to be working with uh, Justin, the other Justin, uh, as well, I like to think of him. Like like most of like most of my work, Midnight Man started as a prose character. Uh, there was an anthology called Tesseract's 19 Superhero Universe, and one of the editors had already bought a story from me for another anthology, and he cornered me at a convention, and he said, you're going to write me a superhero story, aren't you? And, you know, that's as good as, that's as, yeah. good as you're going to get in terms of a guaranteed sale when an, an editor who's published you before says, I want something from you. Right. And so I said, yeah, and I didn't even think about what I... He solicited you for text. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, I didn't even think about what it was going to be. I, I, loved, I loved superheroes in comic form. I hadn't given much thought to writing a prose version. Um, and it took me a long time to come up with a character. But that was, he, got his, he got his start as a prose, and he's sort of a love letter to the old pulp heroes like the Shadow, the Spider, and Green Hornet, and all that. So he is... Uh, uh, he is a relatively normal guy whose day job is a, as an undertaker, and he hunts necromancers and the undead. <laughs> and that was that was that was what I, I got started with. And I'm like, you know, I just. So how did you find uh, Justin Schaff, and how did you work together? Because you live in different cities. We do. You had, you know. Uh, well, and this is where this is where uh, going to cons 
is a great thing. Uh, I met, I came to know about Justin because I backed the Kickstarter for Canadian Core, uh, a September 17 uh, productions book. And I liked his art. And the whole concept of it was hitting me right in my Alpha Flight feels. Right. And yeah, so Andrew Lorenz, right? Yeah. yeah he's uh, yeah, yeah, Andrew's a great totally guy. Alpha Flight love letter And, book. and yeah. so uh, Justin, and, and Justin has done some work for Space Pig Hamadeus. And so I kind of got to know his work from work he'd already done with people I knew. And, and so I, and I think we tabled near each other a couple of times at conventions and just started chatting. And I didn't feel like Midnight Man was necessarily his thing mm -hmm. from what I had seen, but I could also, I could, I could envision the book that he would draw and I wanted to see it. I think they're the I best like, pages he's ever done. Yeah. I saw the raw page. He showed me the. Oh, like, it's so yeah. good. Yeah, like it. Again, it was just one of those. This isn't. This isn't something you have done before. But I. I can see it, and I know it's going to be. I know it's going to be boss, and I want it to, it to exist. And the only way for it to exist is for me to pay you to draw it. Right. And so I just I queried him through his website, and I said, Oh, hey, it's me, and you know we met at this con and this con, and uh, you know I, I've got a project, and I'm like. And, and this is where, like, listening to your podcast and going to cons and talking to people, it gave me a bit of a language for how to do this. I'm like, he's not going to have time to do a full book. Right. I don't have money to do a full book. Let's do six pages. Here's what my budget looks like. Right, and then work backwards from and there. Then we worked, and then we found an accord and right. got rolling. And that six-page thing as... Uh Justin or Chasing Art. We'll just call you Chasing now so we don't confuse the Justins. All right. All right. So as Chasing Artwork here knows, um, doing a short project proves whether or not a long project is possible. Yeah. If you start a long project, that can be the death of the project. For a lot of people. For a lot of yeah. people. So Even six yeah. pages, I think a lot of you know, fledgling artists don't realize how much work yeah. Mm -hmm. It goes into six pages. Yeah. Well, and yeah. I didn't realize how much work would go into a six-page script. Right. Because I'd never written to that length before. Yeah. And I, and by and large, I when I read monthly comics, I'm reading the full 22-page story. And even then, usually that is a story drawn out over four to six issues yeah. Yeah. these days. Yeah, it's way hard. Um, well, I mean, it's like the way a short story is a... Completely different beast. Different beast than a novel. Um, a sh little short vignette story in comics. Oh, man. Because you only got, you know, depending on how you lay it out, you're going to end up either with, you know, in six pages, three two-page spreads. Mm -hmm. So that means no reveal or less reveals, I yeah. should say, in the midpoint of the story. Or if you, you know, have it organized properly, you know, you're at the end. There's no punchline because the last page of the story is also in a two-page yeah. spread. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, no, it was sort of doing it, it took me, panel think, math in my head right now. I think it took me a year and a half to crack my first six-page script and that was the one that I wrote for for Space Pig and unfortunately Donovan was very patient with me right but it just it it took me that long to find a process to realize what a comic script was because it's very it's they're so idiosyncratic yeah right like it's all it's about I need to be able to communicate what I want on the page to the artist. Right. And so that could be, di like, I would probably write a different script for you than I would for Justin. Yeah. Because you tend to use fewer panels on a page. Right. 
Although so, lately I've been obsessed with nine panel grids, so I have a whole bunch of those coming up. <laughs> but it, it's, yeah, it was, some of that was, was, and I didn't know who my artist was gonna be, so I had to be like, okay, well, how do I wanna tell a oh, story? Oh, that's hard, yeah. If you don't know um, who the artist is, it's, yeah, really and, hard to do. Uh, yeah, I, I started, like, I bought comics. I didn't really care about the death of Wolverine as a event, mm -hmm. but I bought it because they were including Charles Sewell's scripts script. at the back of the book. So I could look at his script, and I'm like, okay, well, this might not be standard, but this is a script that is acceptable for Marvel. Yeah. And now I can look at the art and compare and see what was done. And so it, ga it just gave me that baseline for how to structure a script and get going. And uh, I think then it took me about, you know, the first year was trying to figure out how to do a comic script. And then the, it took me six months to get it down from eight pages to six pages. I know this book will drive people crazy. I hope so. The movie comes out next month. Yeah, I'm <laughs> often frustrated with people who are authors who believe comics are easy to write. And so then arrive mm -hmm. into the comic writing scene and I've had to work away from a few of those people who are convinced that they've got it all figured out because, hey, if I can write 700 pages, I can write 22 pages. Yeah. But it's a very different beast, right? Yeah. And training people one verb per character per panel is like, it seems to be the hardest mm -hmm. thing to teach a person. Yeah. Well, and even, uh, um, we did uh, three pages together for the Midnight Man magazine. Yeah, yeah. And but we, we did, did that, it differently. We did that we, Marvel method. Yeah, we did and, it. And that was another, uh, another challenge for me because I, I'd say I, I would print out your pages, and I would try to r I would try to script over top of them just on like eight by eleven printed, uh, you know, pieces of of uh, printer paper, so trying to make sure that what I was trying to say would fit in that space. Right. And so, I, dear listener, I was I'll way overwriting. I'll too. give you some context <laughs> here. So, I've known Chadwick for a long time and uh, been a fan of his writing for a long time. Actually. Um, knew you before even the first Thunder Road came out. That's right, yeah. Um, and you told me about this Midnight Man character forever ago, and probably when you were first doing that story, and I just <laughs> thought he was really cool, and Chadwick sent me some original, like, uh, concept art. I don't know who did yeah, that. Yeah, uh, my, my friend Kevin Madison in Calgary. Right. Uh, he, uh, he's done a bunch of Thunder Road art for me, and he just likes drawing the character, so he, he will occasionally I'll wake up in the morning, and there's a new... You know, there's a new Thunder Road illustration. Right. He's like, here you go, enjoy. And I thought, and man, this guy was really cool, or this character was cool, what can I do for it? And then you said I have an anthology coming out, and I said something along the lines of, I don't have time to work from somebody's script, but if you let me draw three pages the way I want and then write something to it, I can fit it in as a fun thing around what I'm already doing. Yeah. So we did not follow regular comic rules to get that thing together. But I love how it turned out. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was such a fun experience to, again, like not have full control over the story and, and to eat just, I knew that there was a story there, but we didn't talk about you. You didn't tell me what your intentions were. Yeah. And I didn't know I pants that. Yeah. And I so started in, I, I did three pages as nine panel grids and I told myself, I am not going to think too much about what the story is. I'm just going to do each panel one at a time. Yeah. which is not usually how I do comics either. So I told myself I'm going to do it, and we're going to do it just as a trade. Um, uh, Chatter said he'd write a story for me if I did some panels for him. Um, then I'm going to also try to do something in a way that I don't normally do, try to learn a little, try to do it a little. And man, it was fun. Yeah. 
and I think I think my first three drafts were, were just me writing around those panels trying to figure out what the story was and then uh, it was me trying not to get in the way of your art like there you uh, know like I, I would I would write oh and it, it's hard too when you when you've got a character who is written in the first person and tends to narrate what's going on so I had to I did I kind of had to divorce him from his prose version a little bit mm -hmm. because he absolutely would be describing what he's seeing, but I don't need to do that because you've done it. So I had to like get down to the core of what he was trying to say. And like, I don't need to be talking about a door creaking open because we can see that it's open. And there's a you weird know? podcast connection here too, because I did the nine panels because we've been looking at the development of infinite universes, infinite universe, pardon me. So, uh, Stephen and Lyndon's book, which is a lot of nine panel grids, and they've been on the podcast. And so that was in my head. And then Lyndon was doing lettering. And then when yeah. you needed it lettered, I said, well, I know someone that can do it quick. And so then he came in. And so like there's this weird super pulp science like DNA sort of yeah. threaded through this whole thing, which is why it's a special story for me. Well, and, and, and frequent uh, contributor to super pulp science, Sam Biko, was... Uh, was my editor uh, for the, the script that I did with, uh, with Justin, so. Now, Justin, well, so this, dear listener, it seems clear here that uh, <laughs> if you want to get stuff done, you need to find a crew of people who like working on stuff. And um, Justin, what he described, what we did, what Chadwick and I just did, it's how you and I basically work regularly. Usually. I just yeah. let you go, or more or less you say, I already went. Yeah. And then you say, hey, can you find some words to match this? Well, and I think that goes back to starting out. If I, just, if I came to anybody with an idea and nothing to back it up, you know, they have no, there's, there's nothing to go off of there. Like, ideas are, are worthless, like we, we say often. But, like, once you have something mm -hmm. finished, then, then we have something to talk about. So I still kind of have that mentality. Of I'm not, I'm not going to come to you with just a, a raw idea. I'm going to start finishing things and then bring you in to go from there. And then we play to your strengths. We play to each other's strengths a little yeah. bit more that way. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been a very fun episode of Super Pulp Science where we talk about how genre gets made. We've been here with uh, our very special guest, Chadwick Kinther. You can check out his new book, Graveyard Mind, which is out in July. In oh. July. But if we're really lucky, fingers crossed, I might have copies at FanQuest in June. And FanQuest is? June 23rd, 24th. June 23rd and 24th. We will all see you there. All right. See you guys. Join the fight. Make comics.